If you would, pray with me, and then we're going to look at that passage together. Let's pray first. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place and to gather in your name. We pray that as we spend time in your word, that you would be the one who leads and guides us in all truth. We confess each week as we open your word together that we can't do this without you, and so we ask that your spirit would move in this place, that you would be the one that leads and guides us, that teaches us, that takes the eternal truth of your word and applies it to our lives to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us who you are and the ways that you've created us to be and to live. And uh, we pray that we would take uh, the appropriate steps of action to follow you and the things that you've called us to be, uh, trusting that you know what is best for us. And so we pray that that would be true of us this morning as we spend time in your word. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, happy New Year. Uh, we gathered last week at this time and it was New Year's Eve and uh, now you've had your first week of 2024 and I hope it was a, a good one and I uh, hope you started uh, all the things that you wanted to do for this new year and you got off to a great start. Uh, one of the things we talked about last week uh, was kind of a precursor to really what we're doing for the first five weeks of this year is just thinking about how we put into practice the things that Jesus calls us to be and to do and as we seek to follow him in all things. And so really what we've been saying or what I said last week, just kind of big ideas. We just want to, we're calling this short sermon series for January, uh, following Jesus daily. And so what I'm trying to do is just give you some simple, practical, repeatable habits that help you to live up into your identity in Jesus, what God has created and then recreated you in Christ to be. And so last week, if you were with us, we looked at Colossians uh, chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul says, put to death that which is earthly in you. And then he says to put away some of these things, and then to put on this new way of operating. And we could really summarize it this way, Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of the creator. Put on the new self. Begin to step into the way God has called you to live in Christ and what that looks like. And so each week we're going to just talk about some repeatable, simple habits. But what I want to do in those is to give you the theological or the, the biblical backing of why these are important. Why they're good. Why this is what we're created to be. And the way God calls us to live. And then I want us to think about just some practical uh, steps that we can take to begin to live those out. And so today we're going to talk about this idea of blessing others, about caring for others, uh, of, of what it says here in, Col- or in Philippians chapter 2 that, that uh, Jonathan just read to you, where it says this in verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And that's really our big idea of what we're going to talk about today. There's a whole lot of things in Philippians 2. There's a lot of sermons that we could preach from these 11 verses. There's a lot of big important things that are said here. But I really want us to narrow our focus to verse 3 and 4. And what it is that God's calling us to be in following Jesus. And then what does that look like? How do we actually walk that out day by day? How do we live into this new self as we're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. And so the way I want us to look at it this morning is real simple. First, I want us to consider that if he's calling us to this and he's telling us do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and he's calling us to to live for others, why is that difficult at different times? The Bible gives us, he gives us some 
reasons here is that scripture gives us some reasons why we struggle with that. And so I first want us to consider the reasons that we struggle, kind of what's underneath that struggle. Then secondly, the answers that are given here to help us. And then lastly, I just want to challenge you with some practical steps to begin to live this out in your life. And I wanted to make it as uh, practically uh, relevant as it can be. And just really, really simple, repeatable things that we can begin to practice together as God's people as we go into 2024. And so let's just start with why we struggle, the big idea of what he's talking about here. And so look at verses one through four with me one more time. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, Any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the first thing I want you to think about when we start to think... Think about this passage and what he's calling us to. And he tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And I think the Apostle Paul says that and starts with that is because that's our default. In and of ourselves and the sinfulness of our heart that we often will start with putting ourselves at the center, right? Just think about what he even says there. Selfish ambition or empty conceit, right? You know what it means to be conceited, to be all about yourself, to put yourself in the center of everything. And that's really what sinfulness looks like, right? That's the very heart of our sin in when we've rebelled against God. And all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so our default in our heart, apart from the spirit working in us, apart from trusting Christ and the way that we're living, is to be conceited, is to be all about me and what I think and what I feel. Uh, the word that Paul uses here, actually, when you look at verse Three, when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Really what he, the word he uses there is empty glory, right? And so that's what he's saying is you're, you're seeking things that to bring glory that are empty, that are not the way that you are created to be. And so I want us just to think about that for just a second and what that means. God created us to know and to love him, to center our world around him and to love God and then to love others. But at the very heart of sin is we ignored God in the world that he created and we told God we can do this without you, right? That goes very back uh, to Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, trust me in the way I've made things. And they go, you know what? We think we can do this on our own. And instead of orbiting around God in the way that we're created, we go, no, no, I can do this myself. And as soon as we begin to think that way, what we've done is we've started to pursue an empty glory, something that will never be able to do what we hope it can do. A uh, famous uh, philosopher, mathematician, brilliant guy named Blaise Pascal said it very famously, that in our sin, it produces in us a God-shaped hole, that, that there's an infinite need in us that we were created for God. We weren't created to be about ourselves And who we are and what we think and all about me. But we were created to be about God. And as soon as we miss that, there's this need in us that only God can fulfill. But yet what we often do is we begin to pursue an empty glory. As if something else can fill that need. And so what he's warning us against here. And what he's telling us not to do is to not do that. Put away these things. Don't seek to find glory in and of yourself. Don't become conceited. 
Don't make it all about you and who you are and what you do and your things, but look to God and who he is. That's what he's telling us. Now, the Bible tells us this all the way through from the very beginning is is sin enters the world and it causes all these issues. But God will say this over and over to us throughout the Bible. He'll say it to his people. One of of my favorite places that just so succinctly says it is in Jeremiah chapter 2. And so God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. And he says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I want you to think about what God says there. Right? That God is the fount of living waters. It's kind of the same language that Jesus uses in John chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well, if you know that story. He meets this woman there who's had five husbands. She's now living with the sixth man in her life. She's looking for meaning and purpose through relationships. And Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And what Jesus is saying there in John 4 is the same thing that God the Father is telling us in John or in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 2. That God alone is the fount of living waters. God alone is the thing that can satisfy your deepest need in your life. And that if you look to anything else to satisfy that deepest need in you, it is a vain glory or an empty glory. It won't be able to do it. And yet in our sinfulness, we oftentimes go back and we seek to place uh, ultimate meaning and purpose in other things. But God says there in Jeremiah 2 that that's like broke, uh, uh, like drinking from a broken cistern. If you know what a cistern was, it's what they kept water in. It was just a device to keep your water in. Uh, maybe common day would be like if you pick up a glass that has a hole in the bottom and you try to fill it with water and then drink from a, a cup that's got a hole in the bottom, all of it's going out the bottom and you're not getting anything. That's what God's saying. And as soon as you seek to get meaning and purpose and the fulfillment of your life from something else, you are pursuing an empty glory that will never, ever be able to do it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in verse 3 when he tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. But the problem is in our sinfulness, that's what we often do. That's the way that we often operate And so I want you just to think about what that looks like at different times for a second of what empty glory practically looks like. There's a whole lot of ways in which you could say it. I I thought of an example yesterday as I was coaching 12-year-old basketball. Uh, Maybe this makes sense, maybe it doesn't. But 12-year-old basketball, I've I've come to the realization that what I'm trying to get across to 12-year-olds when they're playing basketball is to play together. Right To pass to the open guy, to help each other on defense, to play as a unit, to be able to start to get outside of yourself. But I'll tell you, what you often see in 12-year-old basketball is whoever gets the ball is like, I'm going to score. This is my time to shine, and I'm going to shoot it. And they'll dribble into five people and try to throw it over five people and all these kind of things. And it's this empty glory almost, right? Like, I'm going to make it about me, and I'm going to score baskets, and this is going to happen. And you're telling them, no, 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 no. You got to pass to the open guy, right? We're, we're trying to work together for this thing to happen together. But in our sinfulness, so often we want to make it all about us. Now, that's kind of an silly example, but that's part of the sinfulness of our heart. We want the glory, right? I want to score the baskets and I want people to go, hey, look at what I did and how good I am. And oftentimes we lose the game because we're so 
wanting to be, look at me and look at what I did and make it all about me. That's kind of what empty glory looks like. We start to make our, our lives revolve around things that are ourself rather than who God is. We do the same thing in our work. We do the same thing uh, in our families. We, we make things that good gifts that God's given us, but we make them the thing that's going to bring us meaning and purpose. But they can't stand up under the weight of that. We start to put all our hope uh, in, in the things of, of this world. And so everything will be great if I get this promotion and I have this job and I have enough money and my kids are good and everything's happening, then it will all be good. And what we're doing when we do that is we're seeking ultimate meaning and purpose from the creation rather than the creator. And that doesn't mean those things are bad, but if we take them out of their proper place and we put on them something more than that they can hold, they will collapse under the weight of that. And that's what vainglory looks like. We start to put all our hope in things that should never put our hope in. I'll give you another silly example with sports. As a parent, it's easy. I've slipped, I've had to repent of this. So maybe this isn't you, but I'll confess it's me at different times. There's been times when I put my hope in how good my kids are at sports. I don't know if you've ever done that. That seems crazy maybe on the surface. But you go, oh, if my kid's really good, then everybody will look at me and they'll think I'm a great dad because he's good at sports. Do you see how ridiculous that is? By the way, no one ever thinks that. No one watches your kids play a game and go, oh man, that guy's dad must be amazing because he's really good at sports. (laughs) But that's how self-centered and conceited we are, right? Like that we could even have those thoughts and they start to creep into our mind. Man, everybody's going to think, hey, that's my kid and how good he is. And we do those sorts of things. And that's that's evidence of our selfishness, of our self-centeredness. That I want to make my kid's game about me. Which is absurd when you say it out loud. Is it not? Right? Even saying it out loud is a form of confession. That's ridiculous that you would even think that. God dealt with me with that with my first son in soccer. Had lay in bed awake about his playing time or what happened and all these things. And it was like, why am I upset over this? Because I'm a sinful, wicked person that wants to make his game all about me. And that's what our sinfulness often looks like. I'll give you one more example today that's rampant today. Maybe you don't, maybe your kids don't play sports. Maybe you haven't had to deal with that one in that way. But today what ends up happening is we have this thing that's called expressive individualism. And it's grown and it's rampant in the last 20 years. It's nothing new. It's nothing new to our culture, but it's kind of taken hold lately. And it's, and I I wrote it down. It's defined as this idea that, that moral salvation could come, uh, through intimate contact with oneself in your own beauty and power and divinity within. Or another way to say that is your true self. And what's most important is you being true to you and it's all about what you feel and what you think and you should be, right? You look inwardly and you look at how great you are and how wonderful you are and you decide what's true for you and what's ultimate good is you being true to you. And you hear that all the time today. This idea of this this individualism that you can define who you are for you. But the problem is God didn't create you that way. He created you to know and to love him and to get your ultimate meaning and purpose from your creator in the way that he's ordained those things to be. And it's only in our sinfulness that we've rejected the creation, the creator, right? Romans one says it this way, uh, professing to be wise, they became fools. 
and they worship the creation over the creator. Instead of the one who orders all things, who speaks all things into existence, that holds us into place, that has given us dignity and worth in the way that he has made us, we say, no, 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 I don't need you for any of that. I decide. And I'm going to tell you, that is a broken cistern that you will never be able to be filled up with because you were created for much more than that. You weren't created to be the center of your existence. That's not the way God ordered or or made his creation. But we struggle with that. All of us struggle with that in different ways. And you know the ways in which you do and where your problem areas are. But we all struggle at placing ourselves at the center because of the sinfulness of our hearts, because of our sin nature, because sin is order entered in as we've rebelled against God and it's gotten into everything and it misorders the way God has designed us. Now, what does it tell us here? The answer. How does God save us from that and call us to something far greater? And so there's two ways that I want to think about this. First, I want you to think about big picture, the way God has created us and made us. So big, big level, big picture, just at creation. Uh, if you were with us this morning, we met at nine o'clock and we're reading scripture together and we looked at Genesis one. We're talking about Genesis one, how God creates all things and he orders it and he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And there's a foundational truth at the bottom of that that is so, so very important. And I'm going to tell you, even within the church, even within what I'd call Christian self-help, we often get this wrong. We miss a very key, important part of what scripture tells us. And it's this. Lots of times within kind of Christian self-help, it gets painted as it like God is is waiting on bated breath for you to make a decision so that he can be happy. And that is not true, right? God is eternal and he's always existed and he has a perfect fullness of joy in and of himself. And he chooses to create, to share an overflow of that joy with us. It's not that God's waiting going, oh no, if they don't do this, my joy will not be full or I can't hold all things together or oh no, God's not sitting up in heaven rubbing his hands going, oh no, what are they going to do next? How will I ever survive if they don't do it in the way that I hope they would or I wish they would? God is perfectly sovereign and he's in control of all things and he creates us out of an overflow of himself. And so he doesn't need anything from us. But oftentimes we operate in the way that he does. Or you hear it in those terms. And so I just want to remind you what scripture says so clearly. Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is a house that you would build for me? What is a, what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And what he says is, there is not anything that I didn't make that's not already mine. I don't need you to do anything for me. Or in uh, Psalm 50, God speaks and he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and the fullness of it are mine. And you go, okay, so God doesn't need anything, but I want you to understand why that's really good. That's good news. That God is perfect love in and of himself. And he is perfectly self-sufficient. And so when he creates us, he creates us out of an overflow. If God needed us in those things, then he would cease to be God. He wouldn't be perfect in and of himself. 
But the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the perfect Godhead that has always existed, has this in fullness and in completeness. And then he chooses in his act of sovereign creation to share it with us. Now, what does that have to do with any of the things that we're talking about? Well, I want you to see the connection here. Look at what Paul says here in chapter 2 in verse 1. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and then he says, any participation in the Spirit, right? So if, if you're operating in the Spirit, you're participating with who God the Holy Spirit is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, he says, this is what this looks like. That you would do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to its own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then notice what it says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I want you to put those together and think about this for just a second. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if we're participating with God in your life and who you are created to be, you're not going to be all about yourself. You're not going to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. You're going to be counting others more significant than yourself. And I want you to think about that in the creation, fundamentally, at who you are made to be. God the Father and God the Son and God, the Holy Spirit have had this perfect unity from all create all uh, eternity past. Always. Right. You can read about this. Jesus tells us this in John 13 through John 17, which we looked in detail last year. Right. And in those that upper room discourse and in Jesus's farewell discourse, just hours before he's crucified. He talks all about how the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father and the Spirit comes and glorifies Jesus as Jesus glorifies the Father. And you get this picture of God in and of himself of being perfect outward love within the Trinity. Perfectly loving the other Godhead in this perfect unity. And then we go and we sit together this morning and we read in Genesis 1 and God created man in his own image. He made us in his image, to not be focused on ourselves, but to know and to love God and to be outwardly focused to know and to love others. And it's only in the sinfulness of our flesh where we turned inwardly and we started to make it all about me. You and I were never designed to be all about ourselves. That's not the way God created us to be. It's not what he made us to be. And I think if you really stop and think about it, you know this, don't you? This, this can't be only me. But the worst times in my life are when I do something stupid or I blow it and then I'm in my own head about it. Does that make sense to you? Have you ever felt that way? You say something that was terrible. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or I shouldn't have done it that way. And then you replay it. And you replay it again and you go, oh, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Or why didn't I do this? Or why? And all of a sudden you're consumed with me. And my thoughts and my actions and my feelings and my emotions. And everything's all about me. And it's miserable. Isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that? Please tell me I'm not the only one. I'm the only one walking around like that. But you're so like, I blew it. And it's a miserable place to be because you weren't designed to be all about you. 
God designed you to know and to love God and to know and to love others. And I'll tell you, the, the flip side of that is true too, right? Have you had times where you're going and you're giving yourself to really good things and you're involved and you're in it and you totally forget about yourself? You're not worried about what people think of you or the way you look or what you're doing. You're so focused on those around you. And I'm going to tell you, those times are wonderful, right? To truly be self-forgetful is great. It's a joy that I'm not worried about me, that I'm not worried about what people think of me or what I'm doing, any of those things. And they melt away. And I think God has designed us and created us to be that way. But then in our sinfulness, we turn inwardly. But here's the second part. But even though we've turned inwardly, and even though we've made it all about ourselves, and even though we struggle with these things, Jesus comes to call us out of that. Right? God God created us to be something greater than that, and we blew it. But then God is so gracious and so kind and so long-suffering that he comes to call us back out of that, that we can be restored to the way that we were created to be. And so look at what it says here and think about what he's telling us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Hold on to that, that humility, that's important here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. We talked about this last week. That Jesus calls us from life to death. You're dead to your old way of thinking, right? Like Romans 6. How can you who died to sin still live in it? Or or what we talked about last week in Colossians 3. Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. Jesus comes and he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Right. That's that's the whole of the Bible. Right. All the way through. There's this problem that we're we're uh, separated from God because of our sin. There's this problem that we've all turned inward and we're selfish and we're doing things for ourselves and all these things. And God keeps telling us and he keeps going, no, 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 don't do that. Love God and love people. And here's some rules to help you. And here's some things and we keep blowing it. And so God says, I'm going to send the one who can do for you what you can't do for yourself, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives the life that we haven't. And he empties himself, God himself coming, right? It says here empties, that word kenosis means he gives up all that he deserves as the creator, sustainer, God of the universe. And he steps into this world and he lives the way in which we haven't. He lives perfectly in every way and he succeeds in every way that we failed. But I want you to see how this rescues us from this empty glory. Jesus comes and saves us from us. And I want you to think about this. In the heart of our sinfulness, we want to believe that we're saved by what we do. I'm saved by being pretty good. I'm saved by following the rules. I'm saved by not being like those people over there that are really messed up. Right? And that's the way we often operate in the sinfulness of our heart. And Jesus shows up and goes, you all need me. You all need me equally. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Or he stands up and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Right? The poor in spirit are those that recognize they can't do it. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling us out of ourselves. Stop thinking that you can reach a holy, righteous, perfect God by what you do. And Jesus says, no, 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 I have come to do it for you. And he rescues us from ourself. I say this all the time, but saving faith is transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus. Recognizing you can't do it, but that Jesus can and that Jesus has. And so I'm going to put my trust in him rather than myself. And in so doing, he rescues us from ourselves. And I want you to think about this. These two things that happen simultaneously. When you recognize that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just your perfect example, although he is the perfect example. But that he's your savior. He didn't come so that you could try to follow him so that you could earn your worth. He came to do for you what you haven't done for yourself so you can put your trust in him. And there's two things that happen simultaneously when you get that. One, it's radically humbling. Right? Salvation in the way that God has called us, it is radically humbling. Because it takes you going, I can't do this. There's nothing more humbling than admitting that you can't do it. And it brings you to a place of going, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I will never be perfect. I will never be able to earn my salvation before God. And so that's really, really humbling. But at the same time, it's incredible. There's this incredible assurance that comes. And those may seem uh, contradictory. That it's humbling that I can't do it. But then there's this assurance that comes. And the assurance is because we see that it's not my doing, but it's Jesus. And there and only there can we begin to live in the way that God's created us to live. And I want you to think about why. When I want to look down on other people, and I do. I mean, if you're honest, you do too. And we do at different times. I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I don't struggle in that way. And in that moment, I've forgotten that the only way that I'm saved is by what Jesus has done for me. That I am in desperate need of God's grace in my life. But when I see that, it humbles me of I can't look down on anyone. You know, here he says, if there's any participation in the spirit, do nothing from empty conceit or vainglory or making it about you. You know, the apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. He says, if we're keeping in step with the spirit, we won't provoke or envy. Provoke is looking down on others. Envy is looking up on others. And he says, if you're in step with the spirit, you are leveled at the foot of the cross and you all know that you need Jesus the same way. And so what happens is then you can start to live out of a humility, but in humility, count others more significant because you know that their needs are the exact same needs that you have. Right? It's humbling. But then I want you to think of the other side of that, the assurance that comes with understanding that it's all Jesus. Because when you understand that it's all Jesus and what he's done and nothing else, it frees you from seeking vain glory or empty glory. I'm completely secure in that God loves me 
and he's got me completely and totally and fully, and it's all because of Jesus, I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prop myself up. I don't have to pretend I have it all together. I don't have to try to get my self-worth from what I have or what I've done or what I've accomplished because I already have it all completely and totally in Jesus and what he's done for me. And it rescues me from me. It frees me from making my life all about me and what I do. And it frees me to actually love others in the way that God's created me. It frees me to love God and then to love others out of the overflow of who God is and what he's done for me. Simultaneously, it's doing both. And that's exactly what it says here. When you're struggling with these things, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, and he says, even though he was God, he came and he laid his life down and he showed you what his love looks like. And that's who you are now in Jesus, created to be about others. So this is so very important, and I want you to understand this, because I'm about to challenge you with how you can live that out. But before I get to that, I want to make sure that you see and you understand this. This is who you're created to be. And so your greatest joy is going to be found in loving God and loving other people. And so I'm not challenging you with something that's like, well, here's your Christian duty and you better go do this and begrudgingly get it together and work real hard. What I'm telling you is the way that you are created to live and it will be far better than living for yourself. God is so good and so glorious and so loving. The things that he calls us to are actually our best. Even when we can't see it. And so here's the thing that I want to encourage you with and uh, challenge you with as we think about, well, how do we live that? What does it mean to count others more significant than yourself? How do we do what it says here? Look, not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Make sure you see that. When you begin to live this way, you are living in alignment with who you are created to be. You're taking the mind of Christ. You're participating in the spirit. You're now walking in the spirit. So what does that look like? And how do you practically begin to live that? How does that come out in your life? And the thing that I want to challenge you with is this idea of blessing others. What does it look like to bless others in your life? And there's a bunch of people who put this together in different ways and they come up with different anagrams of like using these different ways of thinking about it. I've heard the bells analogy for many years. Maybe you've heard that. That's kind of the big idea of what I'm using for this sermon series. But this idea of bless, eat, listen, learn, and scent. And we'll talk about those in the coming weeks, but we're, we're on bless today. So what does it mean to bless others? God has created us and blessed us to be a blessing. Right. If you go back to Genesis 12, God uh, calls Abraham to go and move. And he says, Abraham, I want you to move to this nation, uh, this land that I've given you. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. And then he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And what God says to Abraham is, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you are a blessing to others. And we see that repeated throughout Scripture. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. Everything that we have and everything that we are is due to God. 
We're made in his image to love others, to love God and to love others. And so this idea that we would bless others in everything we do. And so I want you just to think about it this way. This is the challenge. I want you to bless three people this week. In whatever way that looks like. And I'll tell you, there's a whole host of ways that that can look. But here's the challenge, that you would bless three people this week and at least one of them would not be part of our church family. That you're going outside of just not these walls and just people you know here and people that you already love and care for, but also seeking to bless others. And there's a whole lot of ways you can do that. And you, I'm going to give you a couple of examples and you can probably think of a lot more because you're more creative than I am and that's great, so do that. Ask God to show you. Pray and say, God, what would it look like for me to bless the people that you've put right in front of me in my life? And it might be something as simple as words of affirmation. When someone does something good for you, you go tell them, right? Like get into the habit of doing that. I'm trying really not hard not to cry today because my throat hurts and I'm going to turn into a mess if I do. But I do want to say, I try to do that all the time with my wife. She's the greatest gift that God's given me. And she works hard. She takes care. Oh. She takes care of our kids. She cleans up. She makes sure everything's running. And so often we can just go, oh, and gloss right over it. I felt terrible yesterday and she did everything. Thank you. We're made to do that. And so I'm telling you this in terms of it's the way God created you. It's the way you're made to be. But it's also things will be better. If you're giving words of affirmation to your spouse regularly, guess what? Your marriage is going to be better. It is. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a trick, but I'm telling you it is. When you get outside of yourself, instead of seeing everything for me and what I want and the way I think, and you see the things that they do, and you name those things, you're now having the mind of Christ and the way God's created you, and you're operating in the Spirit. And guess what? It's going to be better. The same is true with your children, with your friends, with your loved ones. Just speaking words that are true, that you see and you recognize. When you see the things that God's doing, saying those things, naming them. You're beginning to function in the way that God's created you to. And so saying those things, saying them out loud. Maybe it's words of affirmation. Maybe that's your love language. If you've ever read love languages, right? We all have different love languages and the way that we receive those. Maybe your spouse is not words of affirmation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come talk to me. I'll help you with that. It'll be very helpful for your marriage. But understanding the ways they do respond and receive those things and then doing that, blessing in those ways. It might be uh, simple gestures of acts of kindness, of helping a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, something that you know that they need and they're struggling with and you go, can I do that for you? You see your neighbor raking their leaves and you go, hey, can I help you rake your leaves? That is a blessing that I want to bless you in this way. And whether you've considered it this way or not, you're beginning to show them what God is like. 
You're getting outside of yourself and you're not all about your own stuff and you're now seeking to bless them in those ways. Or maybe it's uh, gifts. Right? Some of you, God is blessed uh, monetarily. Some of you can do that easily. And you see needs and you're like, I would like to, to meet that need and you do it. Great. Pray and ask God to show you that. Maybe you're sitting here and you go, I'd love to do that, but I don't have the money to do that or I don't have the ability to do that. And I want you to hear me say this because we want to say, uh, we want to do the things that we're talking about the best we can as a church. And so we're just working on our, we're, we're just finishing up our budget for this year and the elders, we've been praying about it. And one of the things is we have this, this set aside for benevolence for those that are in need. And if you know a need or you have a need or you recognize a need somewhere else in this church that needs to be taken care of, would you come tell us? We want to be quick to give that money away for those things. Maybe it's your neighbor that doesn't yet know Jesus and the refrigerator breaks tomorrow and they can't afford to buy another one. Wouldn't that be awesome if our church family rallied around them and said, hey, we'd like to buy your refrigerator. We would like to show you what God's like in the way that we care for you. In the way that you bless, we bless you. And in so doing, God will honor those things and he will open doors and he will give opportunities. And so I want to strike this balance and I'll end here as we finish. I want you to think about how you bless others in the way that God's blessed you and you love others in the way that God's loved, has loved you. And that opens doors to speak the name of Jesus. And there's this thing that happens. Sometimes people will say, well, just bless others. Uh, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, preach the gospel in all things and use words when necessary. Have you ever heard that before? That's a lie. And that's not true. You can't preach the gospel without using words. Because the gospel is a proclamation of what God has done for us in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you don't bless people. And you ask God to open the doors. And then when the opportunity presents itself, you speak the name of Jesus. And those things are going to go hand in hand. So often they're going to go together. When you're showing people what God's like and then you name the name of Jesus, there's going to be this power in what you're saying, right? It doesn't mean that there's not power in the gospel when you just say it, but when your life aligns with it, people go, oh, wow, yeah. That's what you've been doing. And that's the way you've been loving me. And I do see that. And there's a powerful thing that happens in that. And we're called to live in word and deed. And so we want to look for opportunities to do that whenever it's possible. And so I'm going to just end here. Who will you bless this week? I want you to just think about that. As you meet with missional community or your DNA this week or those things, who will you bless this week? And here's the thing that I think will happen. If we take seriously living out what we say that we are, what will happen is you'll start to bless other people in this room. And there's a kind of a snowball effect There's a momentum that starts to happen when people talk that way and when they act that way and they do that for each other. Which, by the way, a lot of you do that already. Right? I think Greg sends me texts all the time to encourage me. And I appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer Pittman sends me texts to go, Hey, you said this this morning and I just saw God do this in my life. This is awesome. I had a dear, I don't know if he's here today, uh, Abe sent me a text this week that said, hey, you challenged me to read the Bible last year and you gave me this book and this is the first time I read through the Bible in a year. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you for sending that. Simple words of affirmation, of encouraging one another. What would it look like if we were overwhelmed with that as a church? 
And not just to one another, but to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. I think we'd be overwhelmed with what we see God do all around us. And so I just want to challenge you to do that this week. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you've created us to be not about ourselves, but to be about so much more, to be about your glory and the good of loving others. And so we pray that you would give us clarity on what that looks like in our lives. Give us opportunities to do that as we go this week. We pray that we would uh, always put you first in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, This is the time in our service where we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, I want us just to think for a second about uh, what we just talked about. Uh, You know, this is a time that Jesus instituted. It was his idea the night before he is crucified. He gathers with his closest followers and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And it's to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so as we prepare our hearts for coming to the table this morning, I want us just to think about all that we talked about this morning and how often we can live for empty glory. How often we can make it all about ourselves. How often uh, we can get in our own head and we can make it all about what we do rather than living in alignment with the spirit having the mind of Christ, of putting others first. And so what I want you to do is just for the next 30 seconds or so, uh, would you ask the Spirit to search your heart and reveal any areas of unconfessed sin, any ways in which maybe you're living for your own glory rather than God's, where you're putting yourself first over other people? And if there's things that God brings to mind, would you confess those things? Would you acknowledge them and thank God for his forgiveness? And what Jesus has done for us. And so I'd ask you just to take a few moments to consider that. I'd ask you just to pray for a moment as you're still asking God to show you those things. If there's things that he's showing you where you have put yourself over others and you need to ask for forgiveness of a person, would you ask that God would show you very clearly what that looks like and how you, the steps of obedience that you need to take and that you would ask him to lead and guide you in that? God, we thank you that you reveal these things to us, that you show us. We thank you that when you reveal our sin, you do so because you want us to receive your forgiveness and what you've done for us in Jesus. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in you and what you've done for us. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning to receive communion, to recognize that we have perfect union with you, not because of our perfection, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's in his name we pray, amen. And so as we come to the table this morning, let me just remind you what the scripture says about coming as Jesus instituted this time on the night before he dies. It says, when the hour had come, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table 
And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. We're going to sing a couple songs. You have this time if you need to pray or you need to stay in your seat for a little bit before you do. Uh, For those of you who are not sure about what it means to follow Jesus, you're at that place where you're like, I don't really know about this. We're so glad you're here. Uh, Your questions are always welcomed. Uh, But I would just invite you to take this time and and prayerfully consider the things that we've talked about this morning. But for those of you that are trusting in Jesus and are coming this morning, come as you feel led as we sing together.